Welcome back to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast, and our conversation with Sean Michael Morris and Jesse Stomel of Digital Pedagogy Lab. They're going to be talking with us more about ungrading critical digital pedagogy and student-centered learning, and also a pedagogy of care in the online classroom. There's um, an article that you wrote with Sarah where you talk about teaching the students we have, not the ones we wish we had. And I think you just described that very well in terms of, um, you know, where students are contextually and in the spaces they are with um, housing and food insecurities, and especially in the in the pandemic. Um, and so, as you um, design your courses and you've written quite a bit on this, uh, Jesse, and you also, Sean, um, you know, designing for care and collaboration and student agency and, and student-centered um, classrooms um, and building a supportive network in classes, how to do that um, with, you know, issues of power and the imbalance of power between students and faculty. Uh, one of the things that, that comes up quite frequently is the concept of ungrading. And I'd like to get both of you to talk about the, the whole concept of ungrading and, and, and how you structure your classes around it and your commitment to it. Um, it's one of the more controversial pieces. Uh, when I talk to, to other colleagues and I have done ungrading off and on, and I think this pandemic has sort of <clears throat> exposed a lot of my own uh, um, insecurities around the and and not living up to my own philosophy <clears throat> on the on the ungrading thing but when i talk to colleagues about it they freak out now i'm in charge i've got to do these i've got to tape all these lectures on zoom and you know and and i have to have these um uh surveillance techniques they don't call them that but uh on my syllabi to make sure that students are showing up and doing the work and getting the points and you know i think ungrading is the piece that kind of kind of unravels that whole system of oppression and the whole you know panopticon if you will so would you talk about uh that and your commitment to it and how you explain it to to skeptics yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'll say is that sort of underlying that work of teaching the students we have, not the students we wish we had, is a recognition that so many of the systems that we've built are built for hypothetical students and not actually built in conversation with what Sarah's work calls real college students. And, and by that means, she means the students that we actually interact with. We've made so many presumptions about who our students are. And even where we're not doing that actively as individually, individual teachers, our system has made massive presumptions about who students are, what they need, how they learn, how we should measure them, et cetera, et cetera. And I think grading is probably the most egregious example of that, where essentially we built a, 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 an enormous system built around hypothetical students and, uh, and then comparing them to one another, comparing students we haven't yet met to one another, and then comparing to, them to one another as though they are just flat rows in a spreadsheet, as though one is equivalent to another. And we've built systems that quite literally and visually do that, set our students 
against one another and in in some ways just visually pit them against one another and so many of our grading systems are comparative where we are actually measuring one student against another and then you know i'll often get questions well if you give so and so a b how can you possibly give so and so an a and i'm like that's just not how i engage with students students are individual human beings and also individual teachers are idiosyncratic and complex so the idea that we could create a neat and tidy objective system is problematic from the start. Uh, I think that when I talk to folks about ungrading, the thing I start with is the fact that you can't just, with our current system and how we've all been uh, encultured into it and how our students are encultured into it, you can't just take grades off the table. So it's not like we can just snap our fingers and grades don't exist. Grades influence a lot of the work that we do in education. And even if we don't grade, our students are still living inside of a, a culture of grading and a culture of assessment and a culture of quantification of learning and really quantification of almost everything in our lives. And so really what ungrading is about is it's about raising your eyebrow at the system and structures of assessment, grading, learning that we've created, and then in some ways that we're caught within. And so ultimately, anyone can do ungrading, even if you change nothing about your actual pedagogical practice, because it's really just about raising your eyebrows at the structures and systems. But the key, I think, is that we need to do that with students. And so even if we don't change anything else about the way that we approach grades in our classroom, asking students to engage with us and each other in conversations about grading and how grades change how they learn when they learn where they learn ends up being really important and valuable so if someone says well i can't change the way that i grade the truth is we can all enter into those critical conversations with our students and that to me is the thing i often tell people as i said that's really the most important step that we can all do um sean yeah, so um, I haven't talked as much about ungrading um, or going gradeless um, at, publicly as Jesse has. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is that Jesse does such a great job at it. Um, and then the other is that talking about grades with faculty, I kid you not, raises my blood pressure. <laughs> I have had, I literally, at one point I was running an Apple Watch and we, Jesse and I were in a meeting together and we were talking with faculty about grades and they were all talking about how necessary grades were and blah, 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 blah. and my Apple Watch went off because my heart rate was going too high. Um, and I was not speaking, I was just sitting there. Um, and so it's really actually very difficult for me to talk about. And, and it's because I get really emotional about it um, because I feel like this is, because I feel like it's a justice issue. Um, and I, I don't feel like it's, um, I don't feel like the answer is I can't do it. I think that the answer has to be, okay, well, why would I, or how would I? Um, and um, because there are, you can't, you can't look around the world and see people who aren't grading or even systems of education that don't use grades and say, well, I can't do that. That doesn't work for me um, because it clearly is working for a lot of people. Um, but the other, but, the, but, but one of the things that I think that I, and I recently sort of was thinking about this, um, I don't remember what it was, we were in a webinar workshop or something at some point, but, um, and it occurred to me that what's really necessary here is what Jesse sort of hinted at is that we need to have this dialogue with, with students about what grades are and what they do. But first we need to have that dialogue internally um, and with our own pedagogies. 
because we all were raised with grades. We were all raised with that sort of um, surveillance and, and, and assessment and evaluation and judgment um, piece of, of being graded. And we've, we've um, integrated it so much into the way that we live that it's actually really hard for teachers. When I teach teachers, it's really hard for them to let go of grades, even if there aren't grades. This summer, I, I did training for, um, for 150 faculty at the University of Colorado Denver. And I had so many emails from teachers about something that was completely voluntary. They weren't paying for it. They weren't getting credit for it completely voluntary. And they were saying, well, what do you need from me? What do you need to show that I finished it? What, like, I'm sorry, I'm falling behind. And it was just, it was mind boggling to me because I'd made it very clear, like, this is voluntary. This is entirely up to you guys. You get, you get, take from it what you will. It's just here for you. It's a resource. Um, but they, it's so ingrained in us to, 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 to want grades, to want assessment, to want evaluation, to want those check marks from our teacher. Um, that that it's almost impossible for us as teachers, as educators, to let go of it. And so the idea of then letting go of it for the sake of students in the room without having let go of it first here, um, I think is, and I'm pointing to my chest for those of you who can't see me, um, like um, without letting it go internally, like it's not gonna work. It then just becomes policy or it becomes a trick that you're doing in class. It has to be something that you actually really feel um, is important. Um, and I, because I feel it's important, I can't talk about it because <laughs> my blood pressure goes up. <laughs> well, actually, I point to that pretty directly whenever I lead workshops on ungrading. And I, I almost always start them by having some version of the conversation, how do grades make us feel? To give them, to receive them. Because getting into that place of feeling is so important. And also because I don't know that I've ever had a teacher say, I love grading. It makes me feel warm inside. It makes me feel good. Uh, and so getting into that space of thinking about why do we hate doing this? Like what underlies that? And, and that, that works extraordinarily well because again, maybe it's just that those people who deeply love grading don't come to my workshops. <laughs> Well, it's also deeply ingrained in students, and I have experienced a lot of resistance uh, with those methods, like, you know, but we were comfortable with the old system. We know how it works. We know how to play it, and you've changed the rules on us. Yeah, and I actually think that's another point of a really important point to bring up when we talk about equity or justice with grades, because it it's a system and it's a system that people know how to work. And it's a system that, um, that if you take away that system, you end up with uh, a series, you could end up at, at the worst, a series of invisible goalposts. At least with grading, there's a bunch of visible, clear goalposts. So it's one of the question, reasons why what Sean says about in, having that internal dialogue or internal conversation, part of that has to include asking questions about your own privilege, asking questions about your own power, asking questions about how you're conveying that power to students. Are you having conversations with students that help to break that power down to some degree because if you just pull grades off the table but you don't do that harder work you end up with a series of invisible goalposts which then end up doing more harm to marginalized students because for example um, first-generation college students who have no real access to the secret hidden 
you know, secret hidden tools or techniques of making it through college, they really rely on those visible goalposts. So I think that that's important. It's just in general, when we're talking about equity, you can't say, oh, yes, everything's going to be fine. We don't have any grades anymore. You're free of that culture of oppression. You actually have to talk about and break down that culture and system of oppression. I think the, the, the general question, the meta question of faculty defending the system that they claim to hate um, grading is, is one that it, it would raise one's blood pressure to, to have that conversation. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of the sort of where to go from here. Um, I guess I wonder when you when you walk into a classroom and you look at your students, they look at you, what what's the first thing you do to try to build the sorts of the kind of trust, um, the kind of rapport, um, the brave enough space to do the kinds of emotional conversations you're trying to have. Um, and those could be students at, uh, who are undergraduates, it could be students who are faculty in a faculty meeting who you're trying to talk to about grading. Um, it occurs to me that it, it's so clear from reading your work, from talking to y'all that, that having kind of an, an open-heartedness about teaching and these encounters and relationship building is, is central. Um, and that's really hard and vulnerable. Lots of people don't want to be vulnerable for good reasons um, in classes. So, so what do you do as teachers when you, when you have those initial encounters? Um, I think that, um, well, so I have a couple, of, a couple of things to come back with. And, and um, one would be actually a question back to you um, because you took our critical digital pedagogy course last, last week or whenever it was a DPL happened. Um, and I would be curious what you saw um, um, from what we did online, because because I don't walk into classrooms anymore. I I, I teach online, um, and so it's a it's a different kind of challenge in an online space. Um, but I think that that friendliness and that sort of that sort of open heartedness and that welcomingness can can be apparent there too. Um, I do want to address though too the, the idea that um, not everyone can do this. Not everyone can be vulnerable in front of the class, or they need to choose different kinds of vulnerabilities that they can, they can offer. Um, and I think that's incredibly important because um, both Jesse and I um, are cisgender white men who pass as straight. Um, and, um, and we can get away with a lot in front of a classroom. We can get away with a lot online. Um, and, um, and I wanna recognize that, that that's not as easy for other people. Um, and, and so what I can do, in, in front of a classroom or online digitally is not the same thing that um, a, you know, a trans person of color might be able to do um, or might be willing or you know, comfortable doing. Um, so I wanna really, really be careful with that and, and honor that because usually what we've done is we've advised that exact sort of vulnerability and that kind of transparency. And I think I still would. I think it's just a matter of choosing what it is about, what it is you want to be transparent about and why. Um, so you can be transparent about your policies, 
doesn't have to be personal. It can be, this is why I do this. This is why we're studying what we're studying. This is why I have deadlines. This is why I test. This is why I don't grade, whatever it may be. Um, so that there is a sort of transparency where they suddenly feel like you're a person they can have a conversation with as opposed to just a set of rules um, who's then gonna deliver a lecture. Um, I, think that, I think that anything you can do to sort of break that down a little bit is, is, is probably a really good first step. Just Bell Hooks talks about bringing our full selves to the classroom. And there's a lot of complexity to what she writes about that. Um, and she talks about it throughout her work. Teaching to transgress is one of the places where she talks about it. But I think that some of her ideas on this are useful to me because she talks about the fact that we can't not bring our full selves and that our marginalized selves nevertheless come with us into the classroom space. So whether we're vulnerable or not, whether we make ourselves vulnerable or not, depending on the bodies we bring into the classroom, we are necessarily made vulnerable by those bodies. So it's not like with her opening up in the classroom or me opening up as a gay man in the classroom, Classroom. It's not like suddenly I'm making myself vulnerable. I am vulnerable just by the fact of bringing that body to the classroom. And so acknowledging that and talking about that, I think is important. So one of the things is talking, sometimes talking about what we're not saying or what we're not comfortable saying is also a way of bringing ourselves into a classroom, uh, of bringing ourselves fully into a classroom and talking about why and what the dangers are. Um, I would also say that, uh, so I just, I've been trying to think about this and think about like a way to make this practical for folks. And I recently in one of my keynotes came up with some uh, sort of some of these practices work some of the time in some context, because I don't think that there's one thing that works. And one of the pieces of advice that I gave is start with hello, how are you? And I mean that to some degree um, metaphorically, but starting with the human beings and not the policies. Starting with, you know, not, for example, talking about your syllabus on the first day, Talk, saving that conversation for the second day, making sure that the first page of your learning management system is not about policies, that it's not about bureaucracies, that it is humans talking to humans as opposed to machines talking to machines, which is what a lot of our bureaucratic policies ultimately are. But also the same thing with our syllabi. Thinking about each of the places that we show up to a class, whether it's the classroom, whether it's the learning management system, whether it is the syllabus itself, and thinking about how do we lead with hello, how are you? And I think increasingly, how do we lead with hello, how are you, how can I help? Um, and, it, and, and I mean that both metaphorically, but also in some ways, literally, especially in this moment, leading with how can I help? because so many people are showing up to learning spaces with acute traumas and also chronic traumas that they haven't, that haven't been recognized or acknowledged for many years. And making sure that we say right from the start, a rug is not gonna get pulled out from under you in this space. This is a space where you will find help from your colleagues, from me, or if I can't help, I will point you to resources where you can get help. I think this is actually something that, that has come up um, that came up kind of organically for a lot of people when the pandemic struck. And that was, as people were, had to go online and they started seeing their students in Zoom, a lot of faculty were reporting that they started off meetings just asking people, how are you doing? Are you, are, are you doing okay? Are you safe? Are you healthy? What, what do you need? Before there was a pandemic, 
these were not questions that were generally asked in the classroom, um, especially an online classroom. Um, and, and, and it's, um, but I don't think, and I don't think that it took a, it, it shouldn't have taken a pandemic to get us there, right? And the reason I think is because there's this idea of, uh, there's, a, there's a divide between the personal and the pedagogical. Um, and we think that what we do in class is different from the person we are. But I talk a lot about how pedagogy should be a habitus, a sort of where we, the space we occupy, the philosophy we occupy, the body we occupy, who we actually are. And so in any moment along the line in, a, in sort of pedagogical challenges or in a moment in a class or whatever it may be, how to answer a discussion that seems to be tricky, anything like that, that there's, there should be a habitus, a kind of pedagogy that you can fall back on. And sometimes that pedagogy you fall back on is what kind of person am I? How would I respond to this human being in this situation? And, and I think that deciding to, to not separate those two things to make the pedagogy personal, I think is really, can be really, really valuable. And that's that, hello, how are you? That's, why wouldn't you start with that? Of course you would start with that. Like if you were walking into a room, you'd start with that. If it was the first date, you'd start with that. Um, and, I just said first date. That's really funny. What if we thought about classes as a first date? Anyway, I'll write about that later. Um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so this, this sort of breaking down of, I don't have to be this, this weird professional in, in class. In fact, my pedagogy is partly fed by my personality. I think of two things. One, I think of initial conversations with a PhD advisor who will remain unnamed, where I was repeatedly cajoled as a first year graduate student to be more vulnerable with me. And I would say, I am structurally vulnerable to you. Um, that there was some, that there was a way that vulnerability as confession, this is what I've been through, or vulnerability as I need to tell you all of my identities. Um, was becoming an alibi for the kinds of structured violence being visited upon, in this case, graduate students and contingent workers at the university. Um, the other thing that I thought of um, when I thought of that in response to Jesse is in response to you, Sean, just being in y'all's class at DPL, one of the things that I thought was really special about our class was you all did an unintroduction. So people were supposed to say where, um, there were there were all these questions that were intended to drive us away from the kind of typical, I am an assistant professor at Skidmore College, blah, 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 blah. This is what I study. My first book is, um, and tell stories about ourselves. And that became a nice way for people to connect. And what I will say is that throughout the week, I became hyper attuned that I didn't know if I was talking to someone who's an adjunct professor stringing together five or six jobs or an endowed chair at an R1. And I would go back to their bios and be like, oh, like who, like, I wanted to, I want to take care with this person's structural position when I respond to them. And so something that was like very liberating in some ways also had this like, okay, I'm all, I'm, I'm needing to mitigate this, but it was really good learning for me. Um, because I'm the person who's likely to do the unintroduction and also supplement it now um, with, with some other kind of reflection. So anyway, that's a long segue. I'm wondering, um, 
we've been, we've mentioned in every question, every answer to questions, the connections between structured inequality and oppression and making accessible learning spaces and being, a, you know, as Sean just said, a good person as a teacher. Um, do y'all have reflections on how um, you connect the work you're doing at hybrid pedagogy and the DPL with the sort of larger teacher movements um, that are happening around the world today and um, sort of fights for, for systemic justice and liberation um, that happen in our classrooms and beyond them? Well, one of the things I'll say is that I think that the project of hybrid pedagogy, I think digital pedagogy lab, and certainly Sean and I's book, the title actually alludes to this. The title is um, An Urgency of Teachers. And the one of the things that Sean and I were talking about when we titled the book that is that when we looked across our work, we didn't necessarily see any one piece that we had written that says our work is a kind of advocacy or an activism, uh, but that that was a through line throughout all of our work. When we look at all of the pieces in that book, what is the thesis? The thesis is that we need to advocate, agitate, and, um, and do the work of activism around teaching as a profession. And so I think in some ways, our entire careers are all about seeing systemic oppression and systemic undermining of the work of education. And particularly, I would say public education, but I also just mean education in general. And so that means pedagogy gets pushed under a rock students get pushed under a rock, teachers get pushed under a rock, contingent teachers get put, pushed under a rock, uh, teachers of color get pushed under a rock. So there's a way in which the entire, uh, the entire field or work or project of education has been maltreated by state governments, by federal governments, by all manner of different actors, by, the, by ed tech corporations, and so it's, there's a constant onslaught. And so in some ways, I think that our, the, entire, the entirety of our work is about pushing back against that and saying education matters, education has value, teachers have value, students have value. I would agree with that. I also, it's, it's an interesting question that you ask about how our work may be connected to the work that other people are doing, other, um, liberatory education, liberatory learning and teaching sort of movements, um, social justice movements. And I think that um, the thing that keeps, that, keeps, that keeps coming to my mind, and this is really at the very basis of what Digital Pedagogy Lab was established for and, and kind of how it was established, um, is that um, I, I guess the thing that keeps coming to mind is I'm not doing this work, you're doing this work. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm gonna give you a room where we can do this work, or I can, or I can learn from you doing this work, um, and I feel like that's so important in in anything that's related to critical pedagogy. Is critical pedagogy is not the answer, like the good golden thing up there that's going to solve all the problems. But what critical pedagogy does really, really well is it listens, and I think that if if what we can do, if what digital pedagogy lab can do, if what hybrid pedagogy can do, is listen. Um, and allow, allow enough silence so that other voices can come forward and speak. Um, I think that's 
that to me is the best kind of activism. Um, because I mean, I can talk, I'm talking now. I can talk, I've written articles. I've been on podcasts. I can, I can talk. Jesse does even more. He talks even more than me. Um, and, but, but we, the, the whole reason we talk is to get other people talking. The whole reason we do this is to, is to try to say, look, there's, there's this conversation going on and there's space for everyone to come in here. And I don't know the answers. Um, and, and, I, and I hope that someone out there can help educate me about what the answers might be. Um, so when I, when I organized the Pedagogy Lab on ground or online, the whole goal is to make a space, just a big open space where everyone can come in and everyone gets to talk and everyone gets to be listened to. Um, and that I think is how we get any kind of movement going. And that's also how we get movements that are, that are going all over the place to come together and see and learn from each other. And also how we get work that we can't possibly anticipate because of our situatedness. I don't know what's important to every single person who shows up in that space. And it isn't, and I, and Sean doesn't do this, but there's the sense in which it's not just about creating a big empty room, but you also have to create a room that has a certain level, a certain set of boundaries that help that help architecture the space in such a way that certain voices um, can find can find room within that space. It's, it's one of the reasons why I can't stand unmoderated spaces on the internet because unmoderated space on the internet means marginalized people get abused within those spaces. So it doesn't actually create room for people's voices. So to, there's two things that Sean and I try and do, which is create a space and then also moderate that space in such a way that, um, that voices do not experience that kind of thing. And that when they do, we step in as quickly as possible or have folks working with us who are able to step in. Okay, I am really sad that we're coming near the end of our time. We could talk for hours um, and I really appreciate you talking about these things with us. Um, I'm, I'm interested what you see on the horizon for critical pedagogy and critical digital pedagogy, what you think is next, what you're developing, what's in the works. I'll um, just say one so, thing really oh, briefly. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and then I'll let Sean jump in, I guess. Um, Sean and I uh, published a book uh, about, uh, a little over a year and a half ago called An Urgency of Teachers. And we just published an edited collection called Critical Digital Pedagogy, a collection, just a matter of a week, uh, a week and a half ago. And one of the things that happens is that we published this book, which was mostly our voices and our voices agitating for particular conversations and asking hard questions. And we have then now published a book that has 40 voices and our voices are then stepping really back in the collection. Um, and I, that's where I think it has to go next. I think that the conversations have to be larger. We have to find out what questions are going unasked and move sort of move in that direction. I've, I've long said that critical digital pedagogy uh, requires a cacophony of voices. So it can't just be one voice. It can't be 10 voices. It can't even be 40 voices. It has to be about creating much larger conversations and unearthing the, the issues that we haven't yet talked about. Because sure, the pandemic has brought a whole bunch to the fore, 
But the fact that those have gone untalked about for so long, some of the issues that I have now seen, means that there's a whole slew of other things waiting for us to talk about as institutions, as individual teachers. Um, I think for me, um, uh, I would say that we have to, critical pedagogy, critical digital pedagogy has to get both more granular and less granular and more philosophical. Um, we need to be able to talk about how does critical digital pedagogy interact with the LMS? What does, what does design look like when you're coming from a critical digital pedagogical standpoint? Um, like, how does this get implemented, essentially? Um, where do, what does it look like? And ungrading is one of those answers, but ungrading also calls, calls attention to the fact that we also need to have that philosophical conversation of why would we ungrade? So when we look at the LMS, for example, why are we teaching in the LMS? What choices are we making when we decide to do that? Or what choices are we making when we leave the LMS? Um, and um, what does design look like there? What does design look like elsewhere? Digital Pedagogy Lab taught me a lot about digital design and online design. Um, it was guesswork, a lot of it, but it seemed to work. And it was also imp improv throughout the week, little little changes being made here and there throughout the week. Um, and, but what, what was, why I could do that was because I knew where my pedagogical habitus was. I knew where I was coming from. And so I think we have to have both those discussions. We need to be thinking granularly, but we also need to be thinking large, big picture. Um, so many people want to come to training and they want to, and, and they want to, they want to read an article about ungrading and suddenly they'll do the thing. Um, but it does become a trick. It becomes a, it becomes a best practice. It becomes something that you're just doing because someone told you it was a good idea instead of doing it because it came from somewhere. Um, so it coming from somewhere is where I really want to go to. Um, I really want to get, I want people thinking about pedagogy. I want universities thinking about pedagogy, institutions thinking about pedagogy, um, centers of teaching and learning thinking about pedagogy, because they often don't, they think about PowerPoint, they think about other things, but they don't think about pedagogy. Um, I, I, like, I think this needs to be a big part of the conversation um, is the why we do what we do. One of my great insights of DPL was we use the word trick a lot. Um, students thinking something is a trick, ungrading is a trick, but also the number of centers for teaching and learning that have events for teachers called tricks for teaching. Um, and I think I've, I will never see the tricks for teaching uh, seminars in the same way again. I will read them as my students read the ungrading sections of my syllabus uh, before we are all together and thinking through grades. Um, to this, to this um, last bit, Sean, that you were saying about sort of we're doing reflection, we are, what, what, what is pedagogy for us? Um, what are the values that are undergirding it? The last question that we generally ask people, we just go around and um, share what we're reading watching, listening to, consuming these days doesn't have to be about anything in our conversation now, um, but just to kind of send each other and our listeners off on, um, on a note of there is an abundance in the world of things to, of things to immerse yourself in. So what are you, what are you consuming? Um, I will answer first and say that, and there's two, two answers. 
One is I am consuming lots of um, Disney Plus movies with my three and a half year old. And the one that I am loving, like, and every time I ask her what she wants to watch, she and I have a whole conversation about what we're gonna put on. And, but there are a few that I really love and that I'm always hoping that she'll put on. And when she puts them on, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to watch with you, such a good movie. Um, but I'm really loving the Pixar movie Onward. Uh, it, there's something just marvelous about Pixar movies. She also loves the Toy Story movies, but Onward has such a heart beating beneath it and such a, such a it, uh, such a tragedy at the core of it that it's like just a really deeply moving movie. Uh, and then that's, so that's my one answer, Pixar's Onward. And then my other answer is that right now I'm listening to every single word my three and a half year old says. She says the most wonderful, marvelous things. And she's starting to construct sentences and they're starting to say complex things. And so I'm just waiting for her to say something again. And so honestly, like, like mining every word that comes out of her mouth for joy and complexity and a heartache and, and wonder and trying to learn as much as I possibly can from that. What am I consuming? Um, I mean, I have right here at my desk a box of gluten-free um, animal cookies. So I'm literally consuming those. Um, but um, right. Engaging, perhaps, would have been a better word. <laughs> engaging animal crackers. That they, are, they are pretty engaging, especially if you play <laughs> with them. I mean, earlier today, I had a goat on top of an elephant. So um, it, was, it was fun. No, actually, so. I always feel like I should be reading more pedagogy. Um, and um, and then that also is sort of a burden um, to be thinking about because it it's always, it's my work. Um, but uh, lately, um, and this feels very vulnerable, but lately I have been reading a lot of um, gay YA fiction, um, young adult fiction. Um, and a lot of it is because um, I actually am, in the process of writing a middle grade novel um, with with a co-author, um, but um, but when I I was once a young gay teenager and I didn't have this fiction available to me, and so I've been going back and reading it and thinking this is this is kind of amazing. Like this is a wonderful thing for for teenagers to have available to them, um, and I think that if I think about that, because of course I have to, pedagogically, um, I think of it as that's <laughs> Jesse's laughing. Jeez, Sean. Um, <laughs> but if I think about it pedagogically, I think that there's there's a piece of that in terms of trying to get in touch with where uh, where my vulnerability is and who I am and who I come into the classroom as. I am, you know, I come into the classroom as a 51 year old man who didn't have gay literature when he was a teenager, um, and that's part of my that's part of my story. So um, so yeah, so I've been I've been doing that. It's not nearly as charming as listening to my three year old, which now I have a 25 year old. So they speak differently, but um, I listen to them too. <laughs> well, we did a podcast um, on the Reading the Rainbow book. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, Jill Herman Wilmarth um, and Caitlin. Um, and Jill is another Agnes Scott alum uh, who, who writes about, and her dissertation was on uh, middle, elementary and middle school uh, LGBTQ literature. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, Jesse, you mentioned uh, Disney Plus. Um, Muppets Now is my new uh, obsession because I, I love the 
the sarcasm and the and the cultural critique that the Muppets do. Um, but I read, uh, going with Sean, I just read a young adult novel because uh, I do apocalyptic culture and literature and all things apocalyptic. <laughs> um, and it's a fun time to do it in a pandemic, let me say. Um, I just read a young adult novel, Agnes at the End of the World. And very well written, um, but another heteronormative uh, post apocalyptic future uh, still. Um, uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm immersing myself in an apocalyptic culture and in more apocalypse. Okay, Lucia. I'm consuming the WNBA. All I do is sit around and watch WNBA games. Um, now that the season is back, uh, go Los Angeles Sparks. I... Also, I'm, I'm preparing for this class on, um, to teach a class on celebrity in the fall, and that's giving me an excuse to watch every single Netflix documentary about superstars. So I watched the Taylor Swift one last night and have been listening to Taylor Swift all day long. And reading, I'm reading this book called Manufacturing Celebrity by Vanessa Diaz, which is about um, labor conditions for women Hollywood reporters and mostly Latinx paparazzi crews, um, which, spoiler, are terrible. Um, so it's, it's, it's about sort of casualized labor in Hollywood and what goes into producing stars. So I'm very excited to finish this book and also assign it. Well, Sean and Jesse, we really appreciate you being on our podcast um, and uh, extending the, the reach of uh, critical pedagogy into the digital world um, for all that you're doing and writing on the website and the blogs and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Yeah, all. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast, and our interview with the hybrid pedagogy, digital pedagogy lab folks, Jesse Stomel and Sean Michael Morris. My audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Producer is China Wilson. The music for the introduction and theme music, interstitial music for the beginning of part two um, is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. The music at the end of part one is by Acrasis, Mark McKee, Beats and Trumpet, Max Bowen, Rap and Guitar. It's their song Afterthoughts from God is My Autopilot. The music at the end of part two is also from God is My Autopilot by Acrasis, and it's the song Happy Gaze with Mark and Max performing. Their music is available on bandcamp.com. Lucia and I, Tina Pippen, thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens. Mm -hmm.